What is up, guys, and welcome back to the Sweat It Out podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, and we've been very excited for this one. Definitely looking forward to it. He is a publisher and film producer who founded the business magazine, The Real Deal, about real estate and finance news. And he's also a professor for Columbia University. Help us welcome Amir Korangi. How's it going, brother? Hey, welcome to the pod. Hi, how are you guys? We're doing great. How about you? Very good. Very good. So how's your day been? And my day has been good. You know, I just came back from uh, uh, from seeing my brother and my niece, and we decided to meet in Greece because they live in uh, Beirut. So he teaches there at the American University. So we were like, it's easier to go to somewhere around there than to Beirut because Beirut, even though it's a beautiful place, it really is the Paris of the Middle East. It's uh, it's in a really tough place right now. You can't pull money out of the bank, and you know their whole government is in disarray. And even though it's beautiful, it's uh, just not easy to go to. So we decided to go to Greece, and it was amazing. It oh. was amazing. Oh, amazing! So right now, Greece is pretty tough moving the money out, huh? Yeah, you know, but you don't you don't really notice it because the places I guess I went to. It was already understood that it's that this is what it's worth to you and this is what you're going to pay and if you're a local domestic person you sort of trade in that currency but if you're coming from out of town you're definitely paying you know the market tourist rates so i thought you know i think their tourism business is booming oh no for sure everyone's on instagram everyone's traveling right now it's summer i'm surprised they're not using crypto or, or moving their money outside using well i mean crypto market is destroyed right now it's a little weak but you know, hey, why yeah. not? Well, that's a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother topic. So, Mir, to, to get into it, give us a little bit about your background and, you know, how'd you get started in, in what you do, you know, and, and being a publisher and a film producer and leading up to, you know, creating the, the real deal? Yeah, you know, in all fairness, I only produced one movie. <laughs> that was for PBS. That was uh, Building Stories, which was about the guy who designed more high-rises than anybody else in the history of New York. But uh, So that was just a one movie. It's weird that sometimes people identify you as a film producer, even though you just did one movie. It's like Take a guy it. who wrote a book. You know? <laughs> Take but, uh, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. No, uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, with the real... the. You know, how I started was that I always wanted to be in publishing, always wanted to be in journalism. I went to school for journalism. So for me, it was very, from early on, I knew that I wanted to do something as a reporter. I wanted to be a reporter initially, but I was very bad at it. And the way I could get into it was through the business side. So I always had to get into these media companies coming through the business side. And but I always loved it you know, the journalism part of it. That's what I really got into it for. And, uh, you know, being able to, the fantasy of being able to publish your own publication, you know, which PageMaker allowed. I don't know if you guys are old enough to know PageMaker, but PageMaker was like the first, like, Adobe tool that allowed you to lay out a newspaper. So everybody was a publisher. You know, if you have PageMaker, you could be a publisher. So all of a sudden, you're, you're, you love news and you love journalism and you're like, holy shit. Now I can also publish my own thing. So this is before, this is 10 years before Facebook or, you know, any of this, uh, there was no platform to do it unless you were a billionaire conglomerate. You didn't have access to printing machines and things because they were really, really expensive. So, uh, um, so once, you know, the technology came that, you know, you could design your own uh, newspaper, I was like, of course, I'm going to design my own newspaper. So right out of college, you know, me and a partner of mine, we designed our own newspapers in, uh, in Mexico. We ended up in Mexico wow. and we started our, and it was like a weekly newspaper that just got distributed to the expats. We went there because from the border of, uh, you know, from Tijuana down to Ensenada, there was 
uh, you know, you have 90,000 Americans that uh, 90% of them don't speak um, any Spanish. So they're there as retirees or they're there hiding or whatever reason they're there. There's 90,000 of them that have, that spend a lot of money in that, in those towns, which are beautiful. And uh, so they, it was very easy for us to get advertising and run that business, which was great. But it was very difficult to do business in, in uh, Mexico. But um yeah, especially for like, I was like very young, I was 22 years old. But when then I came, I sold that to the printer in the, my printer in Long Beach and she gave me money, which I thought it was all the money in the world. And I was like, yeah. so I came to Washington DC and started another newspaper. And then somebody was like, well, you know what? If, if you like, you're good at publishing newspapers. Why don't you go back to school for it? So I went back to school and I realized I'm so far advanced than anything that the schools are teaching, which is a natural process of things. But because of technology, it compounds. Like all of a sudden I have technology. I go back to you know, journalism school. And I'm like, holy shit. Like they're teaching them like everything that's, you know, that's useless. Now. So, and that's the natural, like by the time things get through the system and get through our education system and academics, you know, from the college level down, it takes, it's a long process. And right now with technology, it's scary because like the curriculums that you have that were appropriate 20 years ago are useless to like a you know, eight year old today. So some of these old school programs, they, they haven't had time to adjust themselves. I mean, there's already so much bureaucracy with the education system that by the time you get a system like that, going, that's all another thing. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry. It's, I started uh, talking about everything. I love it. No, but, but I, love, was, I love that. You're making great points there. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening at the same time. You know, I was listening to last, uh, your last show and, uh, you know, one of the biggest problems is that people don't vote. You know, it's amazing because they, there's so much opinion now and everybody has so much to express and so much to put out there. And, uh, but they, they, they don't do the one thing that actually can make a difference, you know, and they don't actually go out. Like the fact that our voting is not up to like 90% or something, it's beyond me. Everybody has so much opinion and you talk to some of these people, they've never been registered to vote, you know, it's, that's, uh, that's just very frustrating. No, it's extremely frustrating because I think what's going on within the, the culture and our society today in the United States, it's a lot of people feel that they can't believe the media anymore. They feel there's too much misinformation. Social media really hasn't played any benefit to it because what is the what are these algorithms really promoting? Are they really promoting good information, and solid? Then, at the end of the day, it all comes down to advertising. Like, everybody's yeah. trying to get advertising. How, how do you get advertising? By being a slave to, you know, Google's algorithm or Facebook's dialysis, where you, you, you take money from one and pay the other one, and you're just like a vehicle of, like, content production for what they totally, you know, obviously, I mean, they're huge companies. But at the end of the day, it's advertising, right? Like, they're all, like, really fighting for that stuff. And... You know, along the way, the news got watered down because it came down to people who figure out algorithms. There was this sort of report that came out uh, last month that did, you know, headlines with uh, bad information actually just traveled naturally. Disinformation traveled six times the speed online. It traveled six times the speed of the actual headline of what happened, you know, for that story. And people are just drawn to, the, you know, to disinformation for, you know, it's like a magnet for them and it's easy to spread. It's like a terrible virus, you know, once it gets going, it's, um, it's a terrible virus. I mean, the fact that everybody's the news channel too is also scary. I mean, some of these uh, Instagram accounts are, you know, the fact that they don't have anything to nothing, nobody, they can put out all the bad information they want and they're not accountable to anybody. I mean, at least with the, 
you know, with the traditional media, those people have to be accountable. There's like copyrights, they're like, they're, you know, account, you know, they can't do libel, they can't just put information out, but they're not supposed to, but uh, at least they're accountable to something and to someone. And there's like rules that say like, you can't just put anything you want out there, no matter how wrong it is. What's frustrating is that some of these uh, channels really put bad information out. And they know it's bad information and they put it out to millions and millions of people who will never Google it, who will, you know, will just add to the, you know, the bad information that's out there. So Amir, do you think this problem is going to get worse or do you think there's an actual way that we can start taking some um, actionable steps to at least ease it and make it a little bit better? I mean, it, all, it comes down to education. I feel like there's enough information out there where people, if they wanted to understand what's happening, they could find out what's happening. Even even no matter how how much conspiracy you think there's out there, there's still enough information where you could, you know, you know, detect for yourself. At least you, you hope you can. You know, I, I like to think I can. You know, I like to, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong and then I have to rethink everything. What, what would be like your sources of recommendation that you feel were, that still hold that weight? I think, I think, I think the, the places that, the mantle are like the New York Times, the Financial Times. I feel like those are like those are those places. They stand for something, and no, the fact that both the left and the right hate them—that's very telling. I love that. You know, I love the fact that nobody can. You know, it's nobody likes, and that's good. I like that. You know, I, that's that's a good sign. And if both people like them, I don't like that either. You know, so like, but um, but I think those places put out good information. I think there's a lot of great sources. I think. You know, Reuters, that they do an incredible job. The fact that they're still committed to actually having people. They're not bullshit people in the studios on 6th Avenue talking about the war in Ukraine. They have people on the ground there, you know, putting out stories every day. I mean, you want to talk about original content, it's these guys. They're, like, committed to going and getting information. They stand for that. That's been their reputation for whatever, you know, how long they've been out there. And, of course, you know, information like that, information that's not supposed to be biased, when it's out there, it's um, you know it threatens uh, the people who are always seeing the bad light of it, and so those people are now saying like, well, this is all bullshit. You know, this is all everything you're telling you is wrong. Everything I'm telling you is right. You know, and who are you accountable to? You're accountable to your own bank account. You know, I don't want to hear it from you. At least that's an organization with a committee and you know a body that's watching and people with integrity. You would hope, or at least there's one person with integrity it's not all reliant on you know a single individual and it's true though because even if you go on social media you have people giving financial advice who really shouldn't even be talking about financial advice and there is no checks and balances I mean, there it, it drives me that, crazy that's it to no end mm -hmm. it's crazy and they take their own content i love the ones that have the hacks for like credit cards and stuff they take the exact same content and you know all of a sudden somebody from paris is doing it and somebody from italy it's true. It's it very true. true. Yeah. And it, it's become a problem because a lot of people fall for this stuff or they buy into their stuff. And then you see a lot of people saying, oh, I got, you know, I, I lost my money or this didn't do anything for me or if anything, it hurt me. And you're seeing more of that happen because, you know, people say, oh, I figured this thing out once or I copied somebody else's model. Now I'm going to copy it and start making money off of this. And then you see more. more There's no accountability for this information, you know, because, you know, if it's they say it's part of the First Amendment and they're really you know, testing it. They're really testing it by really being out there, having a license to broadcast and knowingly put out bad information. You know, they, they are really testing that whole concept. And you, you, you're like, fuck, well, it's, you know, it shouldn't apply to everything. And then you're like, well, where does, where do you stop? But you know, you can't, um, 
you know, the whole idea of democracy is for everybody to think that they are in a democracy. <laughs> That, that, that's that's very true and very very deep if you think about that yes very you are deep. right and and it's well, it, it's, not, it's not something that i said i think it was like aristotle or plato or somebody like that you should have kept the Greeks. Me. <laughs> and that was one of the Greeks. now i do have to say this because the real deal in in this time has been able to really leverage social media correctly and at least in my opinion because they bring information that a lot of people are not really really they're not looking for this information. And you guys are able to put it in, in bite-sized chunks through these outlets out here. You're leveraging it correctly. And you're not only making a boring topic sexy, but people want to know what's going on. And everybody that I know, even young people, friends of mine, they're always looking at real deal uh, posts and seeing what's going on. Yeah. You know, how, did you, how are you guys pivoting in this new information age? Because a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of um, companies are not able to pivot and make the adjustment you guys are doing. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, we had to adapt so many times. I always tell my team that if we were like in operation in the 1980s, we wouldn't have to change our business model once for 25 years. So all of a sudden, in the last 20 years, which is how long it's been, we changed our business model three times, you know? Like the, the, like when I first started, we were a magazine, and we were like, I put out this, I collect this content, I put it out there, and put it out once a month, and that's my business. And that, that's, that was my reach. All of a sudden with the web, I took the same content, put it on the website, and also that gave me another channel. All of a sudden email came in and then social media came in and video and all this other stuff, all these channels came in from the same amount of content. I have different, like 16 different uh, revenue channels coming from it and you can just keep adding to it, which has created amazing opportunity. So it has changed, but really if the fact that we were able to pivot because we're a small company, it helped us a lot because the big companies, by the time they realized that by the time they changed their social media strategy or how they were going to do their email strategy, it would take them months and all of a sudden the technology has changed or Google changes algorithm and you start from scratch. So the fact that we were small in that period, I think it helped us uh, a lot to be able to grow and be, and continue to be independent. That was the hardest thing to do, you know, to be a media company that has our reach in, for the largest asset class in the world. And, uh, and like not, you know, not be independent is very, uh, very rare. And I'm very proud of that actually, but, uh, we'll see. No, you, you guys are actually, do, you know, absolutely doing something right. 100% because Thank you. Yeah, the messaging, not, yeah, everything, everything is, is like on point. Like you, you, you guys really draw in a lot of people. And I'll tell you this, like now more than ever, like if you look at back then, and I'm sure you can attest to this. If you look at back, uh, when advertising and marketing and all this stuff was around, Really, yes, it was more expensive, but it only took about six, seven touch points to get somebody to get in front of you or look, take a yeah. look at your stuff. Now it's like, it's it's maybe, yeah, certain platforms like, you know, social media offer for free. You can get some cheaper advertisement, but it takes like 22 to 24 touch points to like grab somebody now. So it's so much harder yeah. to get somebody's attention or hooks because there's so much resources there's so many things, and also as well, like conversions on Facebook used to be like you know two dollars, you know fifty cents. Now they're like seven dollars. You know, it's wow. the conversion rate on those social media. Luckily, we were never on that sort of dialysis of like buying traffic through social media. But you know, for like seven years, eight years, a lot of people were taking advantage of that. They were saying they were taking they're taking the traffic and going to advertisers and saying, "Look, I got ten million people," but it wasn't like an organic ten you know ten million. Yeah. And then as soon as they can't afford to pay Facebook because the conversion rates that high because everybody's doing it right. That's how they like all of a sudden they started you know multiplying their revenues. But um, 
but you know, so and those people have to adjust. And the, you know, the fact the fact that we managed to remain independent, we didn't have to do any of that. Like we never had to answer to that sort of uh, the traffic question, you know, because we were always like just put out the good content that people will come to. And being able to do it on social media is uh, it's incredible what a reach it's given the entire organization. You know, because now we have people who who only think they get their news from our from social from the social media sites. They follow us on LinkedIn and you know on Twitter and uh, our Instagram is very strong, and they uh, they get their news sort of their headlines that they need for the general stuff through the social media feed, which is like great. But we're going to add more. Uh, we found that like when we do educational videos their engagement and their viewership and their, their share is like by 10, by multiplied 10, which is amazing. You would think it's the, a celebrity house or some big, you know, you know, a billion dollar deal or something like that. But it's really the how-to stuff that really resonates with the audience. We did a video on our Instagram on lend leases and it was amazing that like went on wildfire. You know, it was so interesting to see people's interest on land, you know, on the land lend lease. So... So speaking with all these pivots and obviously you're experimenting, you're testing, like where do you feel and see the industry heading to in the next few years? The real estate industry? As far as like, you know, putting yourself out there, promoting yourself, advertising yourself, pivoting in, in the way that the algorithms work, where do you see everything moving to? Or the media business. Every, or the media business in general. Like as oh, far in the media business. Oh, I mean, it's there. I think at some point they're going to have to realize that First of all, the body that they have trying to govern the media business is not educated enough to be able to understand what they're asking for and what they need from these guys. And uh, so that has to happen. I mean, um, you know, in, in your last show, you said that like out of all the people in America, these are the best people that we have to lead us. And the problem is that you know anybody who's worth like their salt to come and actually want to leave, lead and be in public display, you know, and make themselves, you know, publicly available for scrutiny like that. Uh, nobody wants to do it. The people who have a lot to lose, who really can add something, they don't want to do it because they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to get killed in the media. They don't want to put their families through it. And you, you know, you get the people that you get who are really interested in going out there and being politicians. But you know, at the end of the day, none of that stuff matters because that stuff has worked for decades. And the fact that we, you know, it's still hard to get people to go out there and vote like locally and at the state level, you know, and at the federal level, and just you know, it's a very small thing to ask people to do, and uh, you know, and you just don't get people to participate when it matters. And that's the thing, and that's what I tell um, even the younger generation because I feel they're even more reluctant to go out and vote that they feel that there is no voice, that they go up there, there is no reason. And they kind of tell me, you know, if I, if I don't vote, it doesn't, it really is not going to make a difference. I tell them, well, if you don't vote, then you don't have a right to even talk in this, in this table and even have a seat to even complain. Because it's easy for everyone this, in, this, in the culture, the cancel culture we're in, to throw stones. But when your hands have to get dirty and you have to stand up and not stand on a fence and pick a, and pick a hill and fight on that hill, then you got you to gotta choose what you want and you got to talk and you got to voice your opinion. And a lot of people are scared to do that. And you're right, though. That's something that it has to come from the top down. Yep. Yeah. Everybody wants to be a savage until they have to do savage things. (laughs) And it's easy to be a savage, I guess, when you're anonymous, too, right? Yeah. 
that's the, the the keyboard warriors are out there all day. And you know, and at this point too, I was watching a, a Joe Rogan uh, podcast that who knows if they're all chatbots, if they're all just yeah, talking to Russian, each other. Russian chatbots. I can't even tell anymore. I mean, there's this great uh, documentary that the Times said it's called Extreme Measures, and it's the name Extreme Measures is the name of the the mission that the Russians put towards Americans, and that they, you know they were really diminished. You know, through Clinton and through Obama, like Russia was slowly being pushed to the side. And then they didn't have the resources to have people on the ground in the U.S. because they all defected. As soon as they came to the U.S., they defected. So they were like, how can we influence the U.S. from here? And the amount of money that it took to get those Facebook conversions, it was like five cents a conversion. You change somebody's opinion in the U.S., it was like five cents. You know, and that, that was back then, right? That was in 2016. Like they were like, you could buy this stuff for a bargain. So um, it's it's an interesting uh, documentary. You should see it. They did a really good job with that. What is it called again? Extreme measures. Extreme measures. I'm gonna take a look at yeah. that. Really interesting. Extreme measures, and there's something else too that I want to talk about that might seem a little extreme right now going on in the marketplace. And I'm gonna pivot into real estate. So go for it. You run one of the the largest um, publication or media outlets out there when it comes to this. A lot of realtors, a lot of brokers that I know live and digest your information and. You know, they take it because they know what's going on in the marketplace. And coming from you, which is going to say uh, that means a lot, where do you feel that the real estate market is heading to in the next two to three years? Do you feel there's really a recession on the horizon or are we just going to be just stagnant for a little bit? Well, for brokers, uh, I, you know, to be honest, there's so much money out there that, uh, and, you know, more of it wants to come into real estate. You know, if it can come into real estate, it will come into real estate. And real estate is really a local phenomenon, you know? So it's really hard to talk about it holistically. Like you can never see a, you know, a big national magazine that says real estate is great you know, because every pocket has its own, you know, goods and bads. But like, I think overall in the strong markets, there's uh, more money being poured into real estate than ever. And as soon as the channels open up overseas, you're gonna see a lot more money come from Europe and Asia and the Middle East into into the US. So I feel like it, as far as the US real estate overall, if I could have a holistic view on it, I feel like it's, it's in a good place. I think it's a good investment. There's still a need for housing. And there's a need for decent housing. You know, some of the, some of the stock of housing that's out there it's shameful. Even in a city like New York City, there's some of the stuff is, you know, you have buildings that are 150 years old. They're just not fit to be homes anymore. No matter how nostalgic people want to be about them, you can't, uh, they're just not fit to be homes for people. People don't want to live like that anymore. And, you know, obviously you want to save as much of it as you can. Some of it is just really unsafe. Um, but yeah, I feel like in that sense, it's good. And I feel like places like New York, if you look at the trajectory of New York City real estate for the last hundred years, it's just been like this. There's like dips of like four or five years, like your big dips are like four or five years. But other than that, there's always money trying to buy New York real estate. Now there's this big question of what will happen to this majority of this commercial real estate, right? Because this whole work from home thing, you know, you have 500 million square feet of commercial office space. And to give you perspective, like one neighborhood covers all the middle West, Midwest of America, you know, so one neighborhood in Manhattan has more commercial real estate than Midwest of America. And, uh, 
you know, there's, they're empty. They're sitting empty. You know, about two months ago, I was watching this thing that like monitored all the lobbies in the city. And they, they keep track of the percentage of the people who are coming and what, what was the average of that the year prior. And it was at 18%. Wow. So at 18%, their peak for that for the buildings across Midtown commercial buildings. And, uh, you know, and people say, well, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. But let's say it comes back to 50%. That's, that would be significant. That would be huge. That still leaves 250 million square feet of commercial office space just in Manhattan that you have to think about something to do with. And otherwise, it's going to decay because people are going to be like, well, I'm not using it. I can't pay the taxes on it. The taxes go up on everybody else. So the cities, core cities, are in danger because of that. Because they're going to, be, it's like being in a building in a co-op where the whole building's empty and you're the only tenant, right? You're paying for all the maintenance for the whole building, but you're only in your apartment. And that's the danger of something like that happening to the city because your largest tax base for the municipality of the top 22 cities across the country is real estate. So if those cores don't have that tax dollar to support it, because it takes support, I mean, you got sanitation, you got, you know, everything that you need for this to run the city. So, um, so that's going to be interesting. That's something that no, not you know, this our race hasn't had to ever deal with. Like the human race has never had to deal with our core cities being in danger like that, where they're just going to be emptied out. Now, do you feel that in order for, like, so let's say for example, because New York was a great one that you brought up, with those units that are becoming empty in the commercial, do you think that there will be more public-private partnerships to come together and, I guess, um, yeah retrofit because they have to because you're right it, that's actually a great point those municipalities and those cities that rely on taxpayer money property taxes and they're not getting that and you have commercial that's defaulting because they're not able to pay those those obligations you're right that that, that city can go into bankruptcy so would a public yeah. partnership work or do you think it would have to go completely outside that they get money somewhere else well, I mean, just think about it. And you can see that the demand for housing in the city, there's still a lot, a lot of appeal for people to be in the area and have the restaurants and things like that. And, I, you know, I think New York City will be okay. I don't think it's going to be able to fill hundreds of millions of square feet of, you know, commercial space because a lot of that commercial space is not suitable for, uh, uh, you know, for housing. But, you know, that's not to say there's still need for commercial space, you know, but, you know, but what that percentage is is significant in, in the city, for New York especially. Because even if you're missing 20% of it, that's 100 million square feet of commercial space that you have to account for. What are you going to put in there to, yeah. you know, use that space? It's true. Yeah, it's open true. up some Starbucks in there or something. <laughs> well, like you've seen some of those malls that have, uh, they've kind of been re re uh, reinventing their malls into like, you know, apartments and uh, changing them and trying to make them living spaces. I don't know if have they been trying They're to do be creative, like that? Yeah. Have they been doing things yeah, like that yeah. already over there? You know, in uh, part of the class that I teach at Columbia, it's uh, for them to come up with different uses for commercial office space. So for the last two years, we've been coming up with different ideas for what to do with if the building, a million and a half square feet building in Midtown is empty, what do we do with mm. it? And uh, they, you know, they've come up with some interesting concepts. You know, a lot of communal living. It, it all goes back to communal things. But uh, I always like the idea of farming. You know, and um, and really opening up the uh, being able to manipulate the interiors of the of the floors where you can use the space really for anything. I mean, if you could really look at the space as like this is here, I have 
you know, basketball courts on the 48th floor of this building. You're not going to be able to get the same prices per square foot probably, but uh, you know, it's, uh, it's use, it's different uses for, for the space. Yeah. You got to come up with millions of square feet of use, you know, for, you know, in that, in that episode. Build, build those micro farms. Right. Yeah. Hey, look, apparently one square foot of uh, indoor uh, growing, grows like nine times more than, you know, outdoor growing for leafy greens, like you know, lettuce and spinach and things like that. Hey, Bill, Bill Gates is taking 90% of the agricultural land. So let's, uh, let's take all that uh, space in New York. <laughs> is it really? There's, there's a, a fellow, like, uh, you, do you know Sheldon Solo? He was like a big landlord in uh, oh. New York, very controversial guy. And he passed away. He left billions of dollars to his son. And his son is this eccentric who's just absolutely amazing. He's like, he, he took all of his inheritance and went and like bought farmland in Oklahoma and wow. can't get enough farmland. He's buying farmland in Long Island and, you know, all over, all over the place. And uh, he's a very interesting guy. And for the first time he's selling this solo portfolio. So there's a story out today on the real deal about how uh, they sold like $1.6 billion or, or something like that. I, I, I didn't get the full amount, but I was surprised that they sold part of the portfolio. So I'm curious to know what he wants to do with it, possibly buy more farmland. I don't know. That's interesting. I, I heard that in, in around Nevada or Arizona, a lot of these tech companies were coming together to raise some capital to create a future city out there. Mm. And, oh, wow. and do a test to see how it, the, the future way of living would look like over there. Yeah. So I don't know where they're at in that. I have to Google that yeah. and see. I actually read, going to that, I actually read that they were going to allow those companies to actually govern themselves in that city yeah. and see if they're they sort of well, right? They are already, right? Yeah. And That's then their whole point. thing was if they can prove that concept works in that city, then they want to spread it through everywhere else. Some pretty crazy stuff. I, I don't know if you're the FBI or the NSA. Can you imagine going to like Apple's headquarters and saying, Hey, I need to meet with somebody. They're like, sir, you're going to have to go through security. I don't care <laughs> what part of the government you're from. Is it true? No, it's like a four knocks walk in and they're going to see um, the CEO. No, get out of there. And yeah. so it is interesting. That's a good way to, to approach that. It's just the infrastructure of the farming and all that for New York. That's a lot of money, but it could be a huge income stream for them, but it's good. It's going to change the, the economy there for sure. Um, workforce housing is another good thing that a lot of people are throwing out there. A, a lot of these big companies are actually investing into that. Um, I don't know what else you can actually do with that. I guess the communal spaces as well, you, they can use it, uh, basketball and different yeah. things. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, that's just one example of it, but obviously you can't make, you know, $150 a square foot, you know, having a basketball court on the 48th floor. So, True. you know, reaching those dollar amounts, but, uh, but yeah, it's going to be very curious. Maybe, maybe there's a lot of smart minds out there, you know, uh, thinking about it, but who knows? They, they would definitely come up with something. 100%. Yeah. And, and, and you'll be, and you'll be the first one to publicize it to everybody. There we go on the real deal. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see it. I'm telling you, it's uh, it's interesting times. Where, where do you, speaking on on um, you know, being one of the first to actually get news out there, that was going to be a question for you. What do you guys do, or how do you guys approach that to be one of the first to pump out new news or try to get ahead of the curve and and see something that's interesting that you want to get out there, you know, to the to the audience. Well, you know, when I started this 20 years ago, there was no such thing as real estate journals. Like it didn't exist. 
So like the New York Times would have different writers from the style section comment every month, do some piece of uh, like Argyles on townhouses and stuff. So it wasn't like anything that was really covering the market and the news. And I always thought that there was a market for that, you know, because I was uh, flipping apartments in Brooklyn and I couldn't get any news for real estate. I was like, I just need basic information. There's nothing out there. The New York Post didn't even have a real estate section. There was only uh, Lois's uh, column and Steve's column, and that was it. And Braden, who passed away. And then, uh, but, uh, but that was it. I mean, there wasn't a dedicated real estate section. Wall Street Journal had one real estate reporter that covered random topics every week, like one time industrial in Kansas, another time alone in Oregon. And now the, the 26 people from the real deal are at the Wall Street Journal right now. Can you imagine that? Mm. And Bloomberg and all those other places. And you know, in some ways, I'm very proud of that. But in other ways, it's imagine all those people that we had to replace and retrain. But you know, we really set the standard for what real estate journalism should be. So we, you know, even now, we every year we win uh, when it comes to the stories that we do. We win more awards for real estate coverage than any other. That's insane. So we're talking about the the journalism. We're talking about how the real deal has pivoted. They were the first ones to really start it. You you were really pivot like pioneering that space. No one was really doing it. Um, are you trying to get a lot of copycats, I guess? And that's my other question, too. Since I was so worried about that. I was so worried about getting copycats because I thought it was a brilliant idea. And I used PageMaker to start, you know, to do the layout for it. And uh, I just wanted to do a magazine. And I, you know, I had to lay it out myself. Like, I had to do everything myself. And I was so worried that once it got out there that uh, somebody's going to see it. The bigger outlet is going to see it and pick it up. Because I had the idea for it. And I went to Cranes. And I told him, I was like, you, should, you have 33 publications. You should do one on real estate. 70% of your advertisers are real, commercial real estate people. And they were like, nobody, nobody's interested in the, this was before the internet. So they were like, they weren't even on the internet. So they were like, nobody's interested in real estate content. And even though they had a lot of advertisers that were real estate people. And uh, so it, thank God that happened because I was like, you know what? I'll just put up issues myself and see how it, how it works. But I had to do a lot of the work myself and I had to enlist a lot of my friends to help me work. And, you know, I had to get uh, junior reporters to do it, but I had, I had the concept in mind. I wanted to have like sort of a, a, you know, a trade publication, news trade publication, like Variety and the old uh, tabloids of Hollywood for the real estate section, because all the real estate people were, they were making a lot of money. Nobody was talking about that. You know, people didn't know a lot of these developers until we started writing about them. They were doing these massive deals and nobody was like really talking. Like the New York Times would write something about Donald Trump. That was their idea of like real estate in New York, you know, part of the regular. And so it, when we came on and we started talking about these people, we started talking about the deals and the profiles of the people involved. And there's a lot of personality and you're talking about New York, you know, and you're talking about a very sort of a, this is the top of the top. I mean, from the finance side to the real estate side, if you're competing here, you're like you, because the, the gains are so big, you know, and never forget the story that uh, the Steve Roth was saying that when the market crashed in New York, uh, like in 2008 or something, he packed his bags and he went to Houston. He was like, I'm going to explore the America and find commercial office space across the country. That's interesting because this is the market for it. And he, he went, he put his bags in his hotel room. He went to see some triple class A office building in Houston. And he was like, this is magnificent. Who designed it? You know, so-and-so. Wow. Incredible. What a beautiful 
piece of structure. How much rent do you get per square foot? $15 a square foot. He was like, he never unpacked his bags. He was like, good market or bad market. I'd rather do it in New York than try, try to do it here for $15 a foot, you know, compared to like, you know, $200 a foot or $150 a foot. So I thought that was, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the thinking. It's like, you know, it's, it, the gains are really high, but you're competing like with the best of the best. So I think it brings the level of, um, uh, the competitors, uh, they're more interesting, you know, they're because they're better, they're more interesting, they're more curious, they, they inform themselves more, they were starving for information too. So I thought if I was looking for it, other people were looking for it too. And uh, th that was exactly my audience, the people who were really ingrained in the market. So, you know, they say that 10% of the brokers make 90% of the money commissions, right? And, and that's really true. There's so much, there's so many brokers out there that don't make any money. And, uh, you know, the more, uh, the more the market goes down, the more people become real estate brokers. So like right now, there's, you're going to see a flood of tech people going to become real estate brokers. And out of those people, 10% will succeed, but a big portion of them will be very surprised by what they face. But it, but it's good. It's good. It's well, what do you feel is the most interesting as, as, we're, as we're getting out of the COVID? And I know the office spaces, um, they're being unloaded, they're vacant. Other than that, what are other interesting opportunities or I guess areas of investigative journalism that I guess you would like for people to really take a look into or really, you know, dive in and speak about and just, just out of curiosity. Well, I think that there's, um, there's a lot of stories that are being told from a, a lot of different parts of the industry, but that's normal. You know, most stuff goes, uh, untold and it, that's why the, you know, covering an industry or market or city is so important because that's what people rely on. Otherwise people, everybody's unaccountable and, uh, you know, if anybody can do anything, there has to be, there has to be somebody that creates transparency and that's the role of the media to go there and find the stories that matter and say, Hey guys, this is an important thing. Take a look at this. And, um, you know, to have a good standard and to be honest and to be fair and to be unbiased. It's so important. That's such a big role of journalism, you know, like you're there to report, let people just understand, it, you know, and then don't feed it to them in one way or another that you think is going to be sweeter for them. But now the sweetness part is forget it. It's not even in the text. It's in the algorithm and how they shove it to you and how they present it to you. It's very true. It's, it's very true. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And that's the world that we're going to keep getting further into. Yeah, it's funny. I got this book to read about uh, disinformation. It was supposed to be really good, and all, all, you know, it's I got it like three months ago, and I haven't had a chance to look at it. And already, it's outdated. Already, there was like an article that came out like two weeks ago that's totally made the book outdated. But it's funny. So when it comes to you yeah, know be, being a professor, I want to know what when it comes to being a professor, what are you working with your students right now, and what are you teaching them? Because man, I'll tell you, man, with everything you're you're sharing your information. It's like you have a you have an abundance of knowledge. You know, when you work with your students specifically, what do you really work on teaching them? And you know, again, I really just love your values and the way you carry yourself with with your work and just everything you're you're mentioning on here. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, the students always thought that if you could put somebody in a room for like eight hours, you could like really teach them anything. Like if you if you get if somebody and get their concentration for eight hours, like you should be able to teach them the basics of and enough to go out there and get started. You know, if, so I feel like uh, with the class, it was so important for them. The first thing I ask people is, you know, because these are graduate students in the architectural program or the business school. So they, they, I asked them, I was like, how many of you guys want to be 
real estate brokers and nobody raises their hand. And I say, how many of you guys want to be developers? And everybody raises their hands, you know, and how many want to go into multifamily? Not that many. Who wants to become a hotel? They, you know, half the room classes raises their hands. So everybody's drawn to this sexy idea of like, you know, what it could be, which is totally fine. It's, you have to have, you have to have that picture in your head. You know, you gotta have that thing in your head that you want to be. So it's totally fine to do that. But in, in my head, I think like, oh my God, you know, 90% of you are going to be analysts and, and uh, you know, half of you will never go into the business or whatever, you know, but, but that's just the general thinking. But they, the fact that uh, they all want to be developers, everybody wants to be a developer, which is like the star of the show in real estate. You know, if you're the developer, you're like the star. That's like the, everybody, the developers are like uh, what producers are in Hollywood, I would think. Oh, 100%. And, and even, even myself, uh, I never really thought about becoming a broker. It's just something that came up and ended up happening because of people that I met and relationships and all that. I mean, I don't think anybody ever thinks about becoming a broker until later in life when you've done a couple things and you've met people. And I wanted to talk about this because you- I love that, by the way. What a great job to be an agent because it's really entirely up to you to put deals together. And you see these guys who are deal makers, and you're like, that's the difference. You like this guy is the difference versus the 99 other people who are out there. Cause you just see this guy and hey, he's, he's good. You know, he's in it. Like he's, there's no information that's not being traded to like get a deal done, which is admirable, but it is a full-time thing. It's a full-time thing. And, and, and you're dealing with so many emotions cause you have to deal with the seller, the buyer, you have to deal with the intricacies of, the, of those transactions. You have to deal with the emotion. Sometimes you're the therapist for your client because they're really attached to that property, but the numbers aren't making sense. And then the negotiation, and a lot of people will really underestimate, but when you're a broker and you're doing a transaction that's $10 million, $20 million commercial, yeah. even 30, that's somebody's livelihood. And if, yeah. you, and if you're not sharp and you mess up, that's a family, that's, that's a whole syndication, that's a whole deal. The people there are relying on you to make the right move and negotiate that yeah. deal. So it's really powerful. And I think shining the light like yourself, all these shows that are coming out, it's really important to bring in that space so people are aware of it. Because I feel that realtors really devalue themselves a lot and they feel when they come into this space, it's going to be easy. It's going to be like the TV shows. And it's not like yeah. that. You're going to have to right. work it. You're in direct sales now. So act like it and get into it. Right. No, it is. I mean, it. it's it's amazing that you just take a cut out of the deal by being able to put that deal together, you know, and the opportunities for it are amazing. You see so many people making so much money, but at the end of the day, it's a very small group, not a very small group, but it's a small percentage that's uh, really, you know, doing some of the, some of the deals. Like you see so many brokers that um, they just, you know, it takes, I, I think it, to be really successful, it takes a certain kind of a personality and a characteristic and you, there has got to be a certain kind of a discipline to it because you see these guys who are really good and they're good. I mean, this, it's not by accident. They're good. They're, they've tried to make themselves better. You know, they, you know, they, they try, they, it's, it, there, there's a different, definite uh, difference about them. I agree with that. I agree. And, and, and Amir, as we start wrapping up things soon, I want to ask you this question and, and I want to know from years perspective what is the one thing that you would like to see change right now in the real estate industry oh you know the real estate industry is such a powerful organization and group of people and there's it there's so much money in there and there's so many people individual votes that are in the real estate industry but it's completely disbanded 
And um, the fact that there is no healthcare for real estate brokers, you know, the, the fact that there is no insurance, there is no sort of safety if you're a professional real estate agent that you don't have basic stuff, even though you're, you know, I know they're supposed to be free agents or whatever, but uh, they, I feel like there's more opportunity for them. If they came together, they could have more influence on the people that get elected, the laws that get passed. And um, that for the real estate industry, that's what I think they could improve on. A hundred percent. I agree with you. I feel that the, uh, the national realtor association has, has probably done a little bit of a disservice for the agents over the past years. Um, what organization, I mean, they manage those fees and the amount of money that they pull in. It's tremendous. Basically. And, and think about that. Our information, our data that we're collecting, our team that we're working toiling away, they're just reselling it to Zillow and then all these other tech firms. And then sometimes if you're, if you're smart, obviously it doesn't happen because you have agreements in place, but the tech industry is really trying to go in there because of what you said earlier. Everything is so decentralized in a way and so localized. They're trying to consolidate and trying to make us trying to make all this central. And Zillow's mm -hmm. trying to do it, but they fell on their face recently. Um, yeah. Do you think that the tech company has an opportunity in, to come in and really um, disrupt that market or it's going to take a long time? I mean, they tried to do it, but that they, they couldn't, they had, they just had so much cash. They're like, what should we do? Let's go buy houses. <laughs> like we could try anything. So, so we lost $800 million. Who cares? The stock money, you know, their, their, uh, capitalization doubled like in a matter of four years. It's like, how, how did this happen? Like all of a sudden they're worth 18, you know, uh, capped, the cap went up by a tremendous amount. And the same thing with CoStar. It's amazing. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's real technology out there that you're like, wow, this is amazing. This is real product tech there's real thought and design that's gone into this and then there's technology that's like okay this used to be manual and now we put it into an excel sheet and we are giving it to you and that's where a lot of these services are there's it's not like real tech i mean beyond the algorithm i think the algorithms are amazing right now and the way they do it i mean it's pretty it's pretty effective and they keep getting better and better but um in terms of like tech tech you know it's not like going to the moon like i guess there's a lot more that could be done 100%. And as, and, as, and as we're wrapping up, I want to ask this question. What's like, I guess, one of the biggest piece of advice that you can leave off our audience and it's going to make them better that they can use and apply it and think about it and be like, all right, this, this is some good actionable information that I just got. I mean, who's your audience? It depends. The world. <laughs> we got entrepreneurs, world business world. owners, real estate agents, world. coaches. <laughs> no, entrepreneurs, uh, agents, coaches business owners. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, there's something that happens, uh, when, uh, the sort of energy that you have when you're a younger person and the resilience that you have, there's a, that's really valuable fuel, you know, and no matter how smart or rich you become later in life, you, you just cannot recreate that fuel that you have that in your twenties and thirties, where you, that you just have this thing that you can't sleep at night and you just got to do it. You got to come home and do the thing. And, uh, that doesn't, that just, uh, it's valuable. And, you know, people who are starting out, they should really use that and be able to hone it towards the thing that they want to start. And, uh, you know, if, if they're entrepreneurs, very, sound and if they're real estate, and if they're real estate agents, uh, 
you know, it's, it's amazing. You, you have a very small bar to cross. Like we said that there's 10% of the agents making 90% of the money. So if you want to make a decent amount of money, because the commissions are huge, the amount of commissions that gets paid out every year, it goes by, it, it goes up by a lot. Uh, and so it's very easy to make a lot of money as a real estate worker. If you're disciplined and you're willing to put in the work and show up and be present, all you have to do is just be there. You know, in the old real estate offices, the people who are in the real estate office, they were the ones who got the business because people would see the listing outside on the window, they would walk in and they were like, oh, here, Janet's here, go talk to Janet, you know? <laughs> so obviously that's changed now, but you know what I mean? Still amazing advice, and, and that's the power of just being there. And you guys heard it yourself from Amir. Amir, where can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Where can they access your resources? The floor is yours. Well, uh, I'm on Instagram, I'm uh, Amir Karangi or at Mr. Karangi, and the real deal, therealdeal.com. You know, YouTube, uh, the real deal, the website, the whole lot. You can find us. Love it. Amir, we appreciate you so much for coming on the Sweat It Up podcast. We personally want to thank you for giving us your time, knowledge, and information. And most importantly, guys, if you got value out of this segment, do me a favor and just grab one single thing that you can start applying today. Not tomorrow, not the next day, but today because you want to take action on that right away. So if you got value, drop us a like, leave a review, leave a rating because the more love you show us, the more love we can show back. Till next time on the Sweat It Out podcast. <laughs>